Swedish Sheboinkin people. We got some dicks hanging down. Dicks down to this motherfucker. Y'all don't believe it. White people don't believe it. What's funny about it is white people are the ones that made up the rumor. But like they said, you know, black people have tremendous dicks. But I don't believe it. And we got, we the dick, you know, remains of the first dick was found in Africa? Big ass piece of bone dick on the floor. Said, what is this shit? It's an old dried up dick. That means it's the first black and the first dick belonged to a black man. Dicks. We got the shit, boy. Listen, women listening to Synchronon. Sick and Ron. Yes, you listen to the Sick and Ron. The Sick and Ron, the world source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm on your host, D. Simon. Hi, I'm Kate Rambo. Hiya. Kate Rambo, it's your first Black History Month. Um, well, not my first. I've lived through like 37 of them. Yeah, but your first one experiencing it as an American. Well, I'm still not an American, but okay. I'm here. A legal alien in America. Yeah. Kind of like they were legal residents of America. You know what I'm saying? Well, I think, they came well, over on the boats, you know? But then they became full-fledged citizens. And now they're fully Americans, yeah. So did you celebrate any kind of Black History Month no. in the UK? No, of course we don't. What are you talking about? This is an American made up holiday, much like St. Patrick's Day, and much like Halloween. It's made up by the Americans. Well, it's made up to acknowledge, you know, the, uh, the, what you the guys history did. or what we did. <laughs> what you did, what yeah. What we did, but to acknowledge <laughs> the, you know, the complicated history and violent history of uh, black people in this country. However... I'd like to point out that Britain did it as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> however, Britain almost Britain kind of began the the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, they it started. They okay. They didn't. I don't think they initiated it, but their involvement. Oh, began we had our fingers in that pie. In fifteen sixty two, and by the seventeen thirties, Britain was the world's biggest slave trading nation. Of course we were. You know what? If it wasn't us, it would have been Portugal. It would have been Spain. It would have been well, France. Were we just involved. got there first. But I'm just saying that doesn't absolve you of any sin here, okay? Rule Britannia. However, uh, slavery was abolished in the UK in 1807, long before it was ever abolished here in this country. Yeah, but you know what we just replaced slavery with? child labor <laughs> we just had little victorian boys going up chimneys down pits well, and dying at the age of 20 they might have abolished slavery in 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 your own country but in the colonies they're just kind of like oh no keep doing it and keep saying, giving us some money what are you saying about my indian family what are you saying about them i'm just saying in the colonies and in, in the u.s and around the world i mean we're still doing slavery is was was very profitable here and i'm sure you guys were making some money off of it. My Indian family lived in a huge fucking house and they had slaves. There's no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. So that, that's why I'm like, why don't they acknowledge like black history in the UK? Uh, because there's like, like, I always say this, right? When it all kicked off on um, fucking, what was that day in 2020 when the guy died in America and you all went black on Instagram for the day? What was that day? 
in 2020 when someone died on, on when Instagram. When George Floyd uh, got strangled. And oh, George guys, Floyd was... Uh, and it yeah, became yeah. like a hashtag. What was it? I can't remember because like I just I just didn't care. Well, when George, George Floyd was murdered by the police? Yeah, when he was strangled. But yeah, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, that's it. And everyone did their thing on Instagram. Where I like they how were, you like, just completely forgot about Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Matter. Because it was an American thing. Because where do all the richest and most influential black people live? Because it's not Britain, is it? It's America. Yeah, but it's... it's so that's why black you guys History have Black History Month, Month. isn't for black people. It's for all of you guys to be like. It's not for black people. Gene. It's for all society to recognize the turbulent history that black people suffered. Not to mention the accomplishments that black people have had throughout the years. Well, Britain's a fucking racist little shithole of a country. It's never going to happen there. Yeah, as if you guys. You guys you, have had. We won't even have like a black. You prime guys minister. have like these. What I forget what you call them. The, the holidays when the trains aren't the. The trains aren't running. What do bank you call holidays. You, you guys have a bank holiday once a month. Yeah, you can't have Saints. one holiday to to commemorate black people. Well, take it up with like whoever. Maybe the apologize for apologize for what you did with the slave trade. I was about to be very racist and say take it up with the current news news agent shop owner of a prime minister that Britain has. It's terrible. Ugh. It's true though. I mean, he sells vapes. There's no doubt. Okay, Rambo, though you seem to be very dismissive of this holiday, I actually do appreciate it. I really do. And I feel a connection to it as a human who grew up in South Africa. Are the you- African side of me feels a, a deep connection to uh, Black History Month. I don't know who is more racist now, me or you, who is trying to say that you are part of black culture because you lived in didn't you have slaves as well? <laughs> People didn't in you South have Africa a Zulu didn't slave? have slaves. No, you didn't have slaves. You had a maid that and how was, much paid. was she paid. She was actually paid a, a decent amount of money. She also had a. We, we, she had a whole house in the back. She had. Um, I mean, her. Room how many board. days off did she have? Uh, the weekends. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she had weekends off. Yeah. Right. And she did. We. I mean, I'm not speaking for all. White people, white South Africans who had maids and gardeners. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, it was one of the only vocations that they could really have at the time. I'm sure they have more now. However, what I'm saying is I have a very multi-layered history. And, uh, you know, when it comes to racism, I never even really... When I moved to South Africa, I had no idea what apartheid was. I had no idea really what racism was. Mainly because, I mean, I was like four you know, I mean, I, there's no way I could even really understand it at that point. And then growing up there, I think my parents tried to shield us from it as much as possible. But I think you're also kind of oblivious. Like it never really even dawned on me well, that it was an apartheid country and deeply racist. Well, you're also, you also were an outsider because how many Ju- well, Jews were there? Well, that's the thing. The, the Afrikaners who kind of run that country... Sure, very racist towards black people. Definitely didn't appreciate Jews all that much either. So yeah, you and your Zulu slave were kind of like brothers in arms. Not a slave. She was a maid, an employee. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I mean, it's like I was also kind of oblivious to that as well. I didn't really even, anti-Semitism wasn't something I even, you know, I did have like, I guess an early introduction to anti-Semitism. Uh, because uh, the, the synagogues used to be vandalized, even when I was a kid. Before I even left to move to South Africa, I remember the synagogue was vandalized several times. Um, however, that's 
that's beyond besides the point. We're not talking about anti-Semitism in this podcast. It's Black History Month. Uh, so anyway, growing up in South Africa in the 80s, you know, I, I was oblivious to it. And we did have a maid, not a slave. Her name was Pat. She was a Zulu woman who was very influential um, uh, in my formative years. She taught me how to speak Zulu. Can you remember any Zulu? Oh, yeah. Um, Say something. Saubona means hello. Okay. Unjan means how are you? I know some South African. What, what, what language is South African? South Afri- Afrikaners. Afrikaans. Sorry. Sorry, I've never been there. <laughs> but I did know a South African man who taught me the phrase. I think it's like, thank you, but it means buy a donkey. Yeah, okay. Once again, that is the language of the, uh, the apartheid people, the people who are enforcing apartheid. The Dutch. Yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're sullying Black History Month by even bringing them up. You know, like, I kind of feel bad for the Dutch. Why didn't they Why go? Why would you feel bad for them? I mean, just getting South Africa. It's like, it's all the way you took down there. No one really cares. Like, no, it was, part should... of the, it was part of the trade. I know. They could have gone for a, just a bit of a better country. No, it's beautiful. And now, now they're left of it. And it's like, but it's all the way you took all the way down there. Like, yeah, but what is it? It was a, a, two it was day a trade route to India. So, I mean, I think yeah, they're obviously anymore, doing it? it for money. Uh, well, no, but at the time. So, I can understand why they colonized there. The fact that they you know, completely oppressed all the black people who live there, you know, for, well, they for are generations. Dutch. They're Dutch. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it, it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been back since uh, what, we moved here in like 1990. But anyway, back to my story and my personal multi-layer deep connection to, uh, to Black History Month. So anyway, I, you know, we, I grew up with this, with our maid, Pat, the Zulu woman. She was really nice. I actually spent a lot of time with her. She taught me how to speak Zulu. And uh, they thought it was hilarious that this like little curly haired fat Jewish kid would come out being like, you know, clicking and speaking Zulu to, her, to their friends. They thought it was really funny. And I, I used to just hang out with them. I thought it was really cool. And so when I turned 10 years old, so this would have been 1985, that old. Great, yeah. 1985, um, yeah, the year Kate Rambo was born. When I turned 10, that was when Karate Kid came out in South Africa. I'm not sure when it came out here. But it came out in South Africa, and of course, I wanted to see that. And so we had like a little birthday party with a few of my friends, and my mom took us to the movie theater, and I was like, well, we got to bring Pat, because, you know, she was part of the family. She's our slave. So we get to, not a slave, she's our maid, <laughs> and, uh, and, and kind of like a nanny to, uh, to uh, the, the, child, the Simon children. And so anyway, we get to the theater, and they wouldn't let her in. Is that because she was your slave? No, because she was black, I... and not all black people are slaves, okay? <laughs> she, had, she, she had a vocation, she was her maid. They wouldn't let us in, and I... Remember just being really confused. And then my, I, I kept asking my mom, I was like, I don't understand why I went to let her in. She's like, let's just go home. And then Pat was like, don't worry about it. Let's just go home. And so we went back to my house and I think we continued with a, the pool party or whatever there. But I was really confused. And it didn't sit well with me. And so I kept bringing it up to my mom and I, I would bring it up to Pat and Pat was just like, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about that. Which I didn't because obviously I'm a white kid. So it's not something that I'd need to be concerned about, but it was. And so I kept asking my mom, and my mom kind of explained that, you know, it's a racist country that we're living in. And it was trying to explain apartheid. And then it dawned on me. Everything was separated. Buses were separated. Bathrooms were separated. It was like the 1950s segregation in the U.S. 
Yes. But but it was like in 1980. Yeah. And I I hated being there. Like I'm, I mean, there's nothing I could do. Did you start writing do. childhood letters to Nelson? No, Mandela but I was de- I was depressed, and my mom was taking me to like once again. I was vegetarian at that time too, and she thought that might have been part of it because I was depressed and I was doing some kind of hunger strike, which I wasn't doing a hunger strike. I was I wanted to be vegetarian, but I was very depressed and I was very concerned that why are we living in a place like this? And then your mom took you to see Queen, and it was all fine again. <laughs> <laughs> we never got to see Queen, I wish. Um, Live Aid or something. That no, was so my anyway. first gig, actually. Can I just point that out? I, that was the first gig I was ever at, Live Aid. Oh, that's kind of cool. My dad held me aloft like a young baby Simba to hear the tones of all the bands Were they giving day. aid to uh, Africans? Actually, um, I do know that some of the money from uh, Bob Geldof's a little, little funder font actually funded terrorism as opposed to healing the sick and wounded. And he's had to since apologize for that. So <laughs> Funded terrorism where? Probably in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a lot of that. So anyway, um, I remember we didn't stay there much after my, uh, I guess, my epiphany. I think we ended up, uh, there was a lot of turmoil there. And so we ended up having to move to this country, move back to the States. In fact, actually, funny story, my dad had the choice of Melbourne, or Bay City, Michigan. I have no idea why he chose Bay City. You know, from everything I've heard from people, they say that Hellburn's a bit shit. So, you know, at least you're in America and it's a huge country. And like, also, I would like to point out that I have been told by many Australians that the postal system in Australia really sucks and it's really shit to get records. I could have been a fucking doctor. I could have been a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, in Australia. I would have been this like 50-year-old podcaster. With extensive drug history. I think wouldn't you have still happened. would have been. You still would have been. <laughs> um, so anyway, that was my first recognition of racism. And it's, you know, it's obvious that, uh, you know, this, this, this country that we're living in now is still very deeply racist. They all are. I, I think they all are. But, um, but, but it's, and so that's, that's why, you know, having a, a month like Black History Month, even though it's, you know, people kind of make fun of it and they're like, oh, now all the corporations are going to yeah. change their, their, their logos to be African colors. And, it, 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 you know, and they, they, they do, um, you know, take the piss a bit on the, the social media, but it is an important thing to do. You know, it is interesting. You know, you should commemorate um, uh, what black people have done and also acknowledge you know, what we've done. And so I think um, mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to do here on uh, this episode of Sick and Wrong. To commemorate uh, Black History Month, we're going to chat about author John Howard Griffin, which a lot of people don't know about. You didn't actually know about him until I mentioned it the other day. I've been, I've been saving this topic for Black History Month because it's appropriate. Uh, but John Howard Griffin was an investigative journalist who in 1961 wrote a book called Black Like Me, where he darkened his skin, like his entire body, and traveled through the segregated South to prove that racism is real in white society. And I think he was trying to prove it to white people who didn't really, I guess, couldn't really conceive of it because they've never experienced it. Yeah. An interesting story. Um, But before we get into that, let's chat about something a bit more offensive than investigative journalist in blackface. (laughs) The second wrong patron. (laughs) How is it offensive? It's yep. a lovely little community. <laughs> so if if you're invariably entertained by this podcast every week, then all we ask for you is to sign up for the Sick Wrong Patron 
and uh, help support the show. Help keep us going. I mean, it's only $5 a month. That's it. And you get access to an entire, an entire second show. So we do two shows a week. Um, the second show is available on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. And it, it gets a little bit more salacious, gets a bit more saucy. Uh, this week on Second Show, we chat about Kate's first Super Bowl, uh, as well as Wackerly's tragic Super Bowl party. This is one of my favorite Wackerly stories. You know, I think that's my favorite Super Bowl party I've ever been to. It, it sounds amazing. I could just, I can, you know that scene in The Simpsons where Ralph, uh, Mil, no, it's Milhouse, isn't it? No, it's Will, Ralph. His heart gets torn in two. Yeah. That's what happened to Wackerly that day. It might have been. I, I know he was. Uh, I know he was affected by it, or I guess the lack of attendance. Uh, but hey, I was there. Anyway, we also talk about an article that I found about people who knew murderers. Um, they're sharing what they were like, and some of these stories are very disturbing. It, it's just weird because you never think about like. I mean, how many murderers do you know personally? Well, none. Yeah, it, most of us don't. And most people do not know a murder personally. Or have one that or be related to one. So so when you when you hear these stories, it's kind of like it's a bit shocking. So five bucks a month, that's it. You get access to Sick and Wrong on Patreon. You also get access to the official Sick and Wrong Discord. Uh, you don't even need to sign for Patreon. You can you go to straight to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the second show that way. A couple different ways to support us. Um, I also have the, uh, the first six years of Sick and Wrong um, uh, on Apple Podcasts. So you can just do a search for Sick and Wrong Podcast and subscribe to the archives. Patreon.com slash Sick and Wrong. We do appreciate the support. So let me play this quick promo. And then uh, let's chat about whether the myth of the BBC is based on reality or hurtful and demeaning stereotypes. Hey guys, it's Steven again. Just calling from Evan through a miracle of cybernetic processes. Just to say, thanks for creating your Patreon page. I love to kick back and smoke a fat one with my boy Carl Sagan. While we listen to the extra phone calls and stories we get all the time. Anyway, talk soon. Love you. Bye. What was it like, really like, to be a Negro in the deep south today? Well, novelist John Howard Griffin, he trudges southern streets searching for a place where he may eat or rest, looking vainly for a job over the menial labor, feeling the hate stare. He is John Howard Griffin, a white man who darkened the color of his skin and he crossed the line into a country of hate, fear and hopelessness, the country of the American Negro. I gotta say, that guy carries his balls in a wheelbarrow. Because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many white guys would willingly paint their, you know, the, the darken their skin and, do and then just go and, I mean, immerse themselves in the deep South, like the, the most racist state. Like, I'm saying South African apartheid was very racist, but they weren't lynching people left and right. No, and they still were at this time. Kind yeah, of. they were. So this was the blurb for the book, Black Like Me, by... Uh, John Howard Griffin and there's going to be a lot of spicy language throughout this episode because John actually rightly points out in his book that the term African-American wasn't part of the public zeitgeist so we're going to be heavily quoting from this book and other things so if you don't like the use of that word like just don't listen to this episode go and listen to something else capiche you know you dig 
you got to print the myth, but John Howard, he's a real Renaissance man. He's kind of cool. He's born on uh, June the 16th, 1920, Dallas, Texas. He grows up in nearby Fort Worth in an upper middle class household where he spends his childhood appreciating music. And this is a hand-me-down trait from his classical pianist mother. Uh, he says, we were given the destructive illusion that Negroes were somewhat different Yet his middle-class Christian parents taught him to treat the family's black servants with like a kind of paternalistic kindness. He always recalled the day his grandfather slapped him for using a common racial epithet of the area. And he said, they're people. The old man told the boy, don't ever let me hear you call them that again. I think Would we you use all the know. N-word? He used the hard N-word. I'm using the softer version throughout this that he <laughs> quotes. He used the hard one. So Johnny, he's gifted with perfect pitch. He has a photographic memory. And when he's 15, he goes to boarding school in France on a music scholarship to study the French language and uh, medicine in Poitiers. He would find himself very far from Kansas Dorothy when at the age of 19, he actually fights in the French resistance as a medic. And he would smuggle Austrian Jewish children disguised as mental patients in straitjackets out of the country and into the safety of England. So he's pretty cool already. This is like 19. He's a war hero. He actually discovers that his name was on the Nazi hit list because it's impossible to get through a show without mentioning the Nazis. So he leaves France and he returns to the States. But when he goes back to France, he serves 39 months in the Army Air Force in the South Pacific. He's in the fucking Pacific Theater during World War II. And he's super decorated for his bravery. And for one of the years, from 43 to 44, he's the only American on one of the Solomon Islands which I think is a feeling that Marshall and Tony kind of know as well. And he's assigned to study the local cu culture. This is very Errol Flynn. And just like Flynn, he catches the eye of a local lady and he has his way with her. And he ends up marrying her in like a, like, you know, a Solomon Island ceremony, not like a legally binding one. Wait, how come uh, they don't, they don't marry? There's, there's no marriage in the Solomon Islands? It wasn't like, you know, a, a legally binding I'm not being racist, but they probably clacked some coconuts and said you married. <laughs> That's probably what they did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the year wasn't always ripe pineapples and girls in sequin bikinis handing him cocktails and coconuts, though, because he caught spinal malaria that left him um, temporarily paraplegic. And this is going to come back to affect him throughout his life, too. By 1946, he's also going slowly blind from the after effects of a concussion that had been brought on by a dropped Japanese bomb. He remains without eyesight until 1957 when it miraculously returns. Now that's weird. So he just said, so he had temporary blindness and temporary paralysis. Well, he didn't know that the blindness was temporary and he recovers from the malaria, but mm. every, he'll get bouts of it throughout his life. In 1953, he returns to Texas. He converts to Catholicism. He asked the Vatican for a divorce from his island babe. Wait, why if his marriage was illegitimate? Because I think you still have to get the clean slate from the Catholics, don't you? They're all about that. He yeah, probably had to say some Was it even Mary's. a real marriage? No, he, that's probably how he got around it. Did he leave the island woman back at the Solomon Islands? Well, obviously, she's not coming with him. 
Yeah, I don't think he's a very devoted husband. <laughs> I don't think so either. But she had to put up with a lot. Like, she marries him, and then suddenly he's in a wheelchair and he's blind. I'd be like, this is more than I signed up for. Yeah, but the fact that she stuck with him, and he just takes off as soon as he gets his sight back. You know what happened? He hasn't got his sight back by the time he leaves. Oh, he didn't? No, That's he's still says... blind at this point. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Because right. I was he... wondering, like, if all of a sudden he gets his sight back, it's like, holy shit, shit. I married that. <laughs> and it's just a cow. <laughs> the island cow, <laughs> literally. So he becomes a piano teacher. He's 32. He marries one of his students, 17-year-old Elizabeth Ann Holland, and they're going to go on to have four children together. Their first four years of their marriage as well, he hasn't even seen his like wife or kids. He's like Stevie Wonder sitting in the corner. He's like writing his book, but really he's like writing all over the walls and they can't say anything to him because he's a mental. He's leg mental. Can't see, poor guy. Anyways. It was during this time that he would write five novels. Three went unpublished in his lifetime and he begins a journal because men keep journals and women keep diaries. All of this is pretty ambitious, I think, for a blind man. So Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Testament. It was kind of amazing he could write like a novel. Like, What did his script look like? Like I told you, he's probably writing all over the walls, but they're like, oh, we can't say anything. Like he's, he's doing such a good job. Just let him carry on. He composes his first novel, The Devil Rides Outside, in 1952. Uh, He speaks the story in French into a tape recorder, and then he translates it into English as he, like, transcribes it on his typewriter. This is a very unusual process, but it's also unusual for a blind war hero veteran to write books. You you know what the thing is? They didn't have, like, Netflix and, you know, HBO Go back then. So it's like... That's how you entertain yourself. Like you'd write books. Exactly. You know, whereas now it's like we have like laptops and iPads and all that, but yet we're too busy. Yeah. To sit down and actually write a novel. Before his blindness as well, he had spent a year in France at the Benedictine Abbey of Saint-Pierre of Salamis, which is famous for Gregorian chants. He's actually a Gregorian chanter as well. He can sit at home and give you off like some throat action if you asked him for it. What can this guy, this guy's like Bruce Dickinson. He's great. Yeah, he can do everything. Do you know Bruce Dickinson is really, really tiny? Yeah. He's, I always he's forget he's so Not tiny. Not really tiny. He's I think like he's five, like 5'4". No, he'm he's like 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, yeah, he could fit. He's like my height. Yeah, I don't think that's really that tiny. For a bloke, it's tiny. I guess 5'6". I'm, you know, I'm a little, little taller than that. Yeah. <laughs> Every inch counts, doesn't it? But we'll talk about exactly. the inches later. Uh and this, like, this idea of like this Gregorian chanting guy, this is the idea for his first book. The novel's protagonist is a young museologist studying Gregorian chanting at an unspecified Benedictine monastery in France <laughs> and is deeply influenced by the monks that he comes to know through the novel's end, although he doesn't embrace their faith. However, John himself pointed out in the writing of this novel, along with the experiences that helped to inspire it, are the important influences on his own conversions to Catholicism. So this is important, like, kind of later on when he's, like, writing Black Like Me. His second novel, Nuni, was released in 1956. It's inspired by his time on the Solomon Islands and the challenges of his own cultural assumptions, which he referred to as his own genteel racism. White privilege. Yes. And it's obviously going to be a combination of his recognition of his inbuilt racism, the return of his sight, that most certainly gives him the idea for his future book, which is going to be the very scandalous social study called Black Like Me. In 1959, he wants further insight into the dynamics of prejudice by journeying through the American South in the guise of an African-American man. 
John said, I decided not to change my name or my identity. If I asked who I was or what I was doing, I would answer truthfully. But he's certainly going to do something else to disguise himself. Something that made a member of the FBI say to him that as soon as white people saw that he was a black man, they would know all about him that they cared to know. On October the 28th, 1959, a few days before Halloween, John is going full Al Johnson minstrels show. He's going to black himself up. So he chemically starts staining his skin using oral medication, which I've actually known girls to do. Like slags of the North who go to girls' holidays on Marbella will take these like tanning pills or tanning injections. I don't get it. They're like pills that you... You would take this pill once or twice a day and it stains your skin? You take it, I think it's like probably like a melatonin booster and then you get on the sunbed and it just like boosts it. (laughs) But this guy wasn't going to like a tanning salon. No, but he had his own tanning lights. Oh, so he had his own tanning lights at home. He would take this uh, supplement, melatonin supplement. Yeah, like really strong and he would take it. Or melanin probably. Yeah, melanin. And then he's like sitting underneath a sunbed till he gets really nice and brown. He shaves his head, and in the book he says, I wet my sponge, I would pour dye on it, and I touched up the corners of my mouth and lips, which were always difficult spots. I imagine because it would, like, cake off. So he's also, like, dyeing his skin, too. So his, like, hands, his chest, his whole body is, is darker. Yes. But to what degree? You have to look at the pictures to see to what degree. He does such a good job, though, that friends who knew him as white didn't recognize him when he was black and vice versa. But of his new persona, he wrote, the worst of it is that I could feel no companionship with this new person. I did not like the way he looked. Thus, he becomes the first person to give him the hate stare. To give himself the hate stare. (laughs) Yeah, to be racist against himself. (laughs) He's the first person to be racist. I want to know why he didn't like the way he looked. He just didn't like dark skin. I think it was probably a shot, you know, like... His complexion? I don't know, because you're, you've never dyed your hair drastically, but I'm speaking as somebody who's dyed my hair from, like, jet black to ice blonde. And the, the first time you do it, you're always like, holy shit! Yeah, but and it that, takes a few temporary. days to sink that's, in. That's temporary. And well, this is aesthetics. temporary. Like, well, this is like, he's changing the color of aesthetics. his skin. Yeah, not permanently. He knows it's going to be fine. But it's, I've also been super deeply tanned. And as much as I feel sexy when I have a super deeply tan, this is like another level. He's dying himself. Well, you know who, uh, um, do you ever see, this reminded me of the movie Soul Man. Do you ever see that? I've heard of Soul Man, but I've never seen it. 1986 American comedy with C. Thomas Howell, who you have a, a, an interesting uh, six degree of separation to. I will only talk about that story, which was entrusted to me by a trusted friend on the second show, but I have incriminating photos of this yeah. man. <laughs> uh, C. Thomas Howell stars as a white male law student who pretends to be black, like full blackface, right. in order to qualify for a scholarship. Um, you know what's interesting about this ridiculous movie, <laughs> which I imagine comes across quite glib. Uh, I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I, I do recall seeing it when I was younger, though. Because um, it's like one of those 80s comedies. But uh, the soundtrack includes a version of Soul Man, you know, I'm a soul, soul man, man. but do, performed do, do, by do, Sam do. Moore and Lou, Lou Reed. Okay, I'd be intrigued to hear that. I'm actually, yeah. pr- I've probably heard that before, but not realized. Well, a lot of controversy in the movie came out and people criticized Howell for, uh, you know, wearing blackface. And there were protests against the film, but it was a, it was a, overall, it was a, it was a big success. Uh, gross 35 mil on a $4.5 million budget, which is, you know, commendable it's to say the least. 
Uh, but the other people, the other actors in this movie, which I had forgotten about and I looked it up today. Uh, so in addition to C. Thomas Howell, Leslie Nielsen. Awesome. Was in it? James Earl Jones. Right. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus. From Seinfeld. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> she's like in an early she's, role there. She must be the, like, the love interest. Yeah, I think she was. Oh, we should see this movie. So in the opening chapter to this book, he sits in his parents' Mansfield, Texas farm, and he ponders if a white man was to become a Negro in the Deep South, what adjustments would he have to make? How else except by becoming a Negro could a white man hope to learn the truth? Though we lived side by side throughout the South, the communication between the two races had simply ceased to exist. Neither really knew know was what goes on with those of the other race. The only way I could see to bridge the gap between us was to become a Negro. All right, now, then, now that, that's kind of some odd reasoning there. Like, couldn't he just, like, get a couple of good black friends? Wouldn't you just go about the South interviewing a lot of people? Yeah, and, like, maybe, you know, hanging out with some people, going to, like, some bars, becoming... I, I mean, I can understand it's difficult to fully immerse yourself in that, that, that society um, or that community. Uh, but what he's doing, like, masquerading as a black person, I think... First of all, you know, it could be harmful to himself. I mean, if, uh, you know, considering like the, uh, the violent racists that live in that area. But also, don't you think black people would have been offended if they figured it out? I do want to just say it was a different time back then. Yeah. We will get more into that later. So he's going to kick off his blackface tour in New Orleans in the French Quarter. He undertakes four intense days of darkening. He's mainly staying inside the apartment of his friend that he was staying with. And in between each darkening treatment, he kind of took to the streets in the name of social science. Each day he stops at a sidewalk shoe sign stand. He gets to befriend the shoe sign man who was not named Spider for Goodfellas fans. On the night of November the 7th, after a series of treatments and a good base tan was rebuilt in, he steps out into the blackness of a midnight night as a black man. And if you want a visual reference for this, I highly recommend recommend the Eddie Murphy SNL skit, White Like Me, but imagine it in reverse. Yeah, I was about to say, it's kind of like <laughs> the, it. the opposite. It's so good, White Like Me. I actually watched it again. That's hilarious. It's one of Eddie Murphy's best. And when you think Eddie Murphy was 19 at that time, he's like a fucking comedic genius. Oh, he's so great. It's, it's one of the funniest skits. So John takes a room in a boarding house on Rampart Street, and from here, he reports back on the sights of sounds of New Orleans, which, to be fair, even I know hasn't changed much. This is 1959. The civil rights movement is really gaining momentum, but it's still a hostile environment for a white man, and he points out that the segregation on the buses and the bars, and he reveals all of this to his shoeshine friend. He writes, an odd thing happened. Within a short time, he lapsed into familiarity, forgetting that I was once white. The illusion of my negroness took over so completely that I fell into the same pattern of talking and thinking. We were negroes, and our concern was the white man and how to get along with him, how to hold our own and raise ourselves in his esteem without for one moment letting him think that he had any God-given rights that we did not also have. I read this whole book in like a day, by the way. Anyone else can. It's, it's a <laughs> so wait, did he actually adopt like the inflection of a black person? Yeah, like the, the, the vocal tone? yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Give me some skin, soul brother. Like like yeah, something like what, that. He was like Do you speak Jav? <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering like how I guess method was he being? He went hundred percent method acting. 
<laughs> so, so he is like Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. You know, I was just talking about that with uh, Gene on Discord recently. I never saw that movie, but I've heard that it's actually really good. It's a great movie. How come you didn't see it? I just thought, it, like, I struggle with Robert Downey Jr. at the best of times. I and I don't want to see a, ro- a role where he's kind of being goofy. Like, I struggle with him. Well, then that movie's hilarious. I, like, he's I, good. I heard he was recently catching some flack, though, for the blackface. But isn't the entire point that his character is addicted to play? His character is addicted to blackface. Is isn't method, that the twist? No, not addicted to blackface. He's a method actor. So this is just one of his roles that he's going very deep into. Right. So he's not just like, I'm going to, you know, I'm doing wear blackface. blackface for like a month. He's done it, did it for like a year to prepare for the role. <laughs> right. Yeah. I wonder if Robert Downey intense. Jr. did that in real life. He might have. I don't know. I don't know if he's like a, like a Jared Leto style method actor. I don't think he is. He's a but he's a good actor, though. So that night, John escapes a beating from a white boy. He eats a plate of beans and rice and pigtails, which he states the Negos apparently live on. And he falls asleep, feeling very separated from the whites. The distance between them and me was far more than the miles that physically separated us. It was an area of no- unknowing. I wondered if it could really be bridged. So, so I guess this leads to another question. Did he shag any black women to have like an an authentic experience he can't man he's married okay so he didn't go there no that's like another thing he is married no but that would have been like intimacy with with a black black woman he's a black man i wonder if did he darken his cock that's what i'm wondering he had his cock will have died because i imagine he was naked underneath the lamps and he's taken the pills so his cock definitely would have gotten a little darker for real but would it have been sizable no, because he's still got the white man dick. <laughs> <laughs> he spends a week wasting shoe leather on the beat for a job. He rides buses. He observes the segregation laws. And then he splits for Mississippi, where the big news had been the lynching of a Mac Charles Parker, which is often referred to as the last classic lynching in America. It's like a wrestling thing. The last classic lynching in America. Mac had been accused of raping a pregnant white woman in Northern Pearl River County, Mississippi. Three days before he was due to stand trial, he's kidnapped from his jail cell by a mob of eight to ten men with burning pitchforks. He's beaten. He's shot. The original plan was to actually castrate him and then hang him from the bridge, but he dies from being shot at close range in the chest. So they just weigh him down with a bunch of chains and they throw him into the rain-swollen water and his bloated body is pulled from the Pearl River ten days later. The FBI obviously investigates. They supply a dossier of information and evidence identifying all the lynches. But the Pearl River County Grand Jury, they decide, you know, for some reason not to use the evidence. So the men who killed him were released and no one was ever indicted for the killing. So was, was the grand jury like in court? Are they allowed to wear their hoods or do they have to wear like suits? <laughs> like- it, was, it was underneath like the winter, you know, when you wear oh. your pajamas under your clothes because it's so cold. Okay. It's like that. So in Howard Smead's book, Blood Justice, The Lynching of Mac Charles Parker, he writes that Parker may not have been innocent, but he should have been given a fair trial. He interviewed locals who knew Parker, who kind of viewed him as guilty, even after the lynching. And they stated to reporters and the FBI saying, Parker's a good nigger now. The only good nigger is a dead nigger. I do apologize. I'm quoting. And an unnamed town leader said, we are all shook up over the lynching but many suffer from a case of bad conscience. 
Yeah, I wonder if a lot of like older Mississippians were upset when they couldn't use the N word. Oh my god! Well, I still think they do. <laughs> like, yeah, well, I'm sure they do in private, but they, I don't think they can use it openly anymore. They're taking away our rights. <laughs> a year later. His name appears in the University of Mississippi yearbook, listed as a senior majoring in education. So the photo attached to his name was what appeared to be like a stone or a paper mache head. It's very odd. Parker's obviously another student there. He's a veteran. And besides, black students weren't permitted at that time. And in the same yearbook, there's another photo of what appears to be another head carved from like this weird material. And the name next to this was Ed White which matches the name of another lynching victim from 1896. Was this like the lynching victim yearbook? Do they have a separate yearbook for the students? See, I would, have, I would actually buy a lynching student's <laughs> yearbook. So in another edition of the Old Miss yearbook from 56, there was a photo of what appears to be a person wearing a really grotesque mask um, with a hat on it. And the name attached to this, I know a lot of people will know this name, is Emmett Till. And he's the 14-year-old boy whose 1955 murder really helped ignite the civil rights movement. The same picture was also used in the yearbook the year before with another name. Thomas Dalton, who was an 1878 lynching victim in Louisiana. It's like every year the yearbook crew come together and be like, so what was your favorite lynching? Mine was the 1892 one. Do you remember that? (laughs) Let's put him in, boys. Yeah, I wonder if they all like look forward to like, oh my God, who's the lynching victims this year? Yeah. Draw like funny faces on him. So it's a uh, this guy, Davis Hook, a Florida State University professor, and he's an author of like books about the civil rights movement, said it's a weird archive of racism that people thought other people would see this and laugh about it. So back to John, he goes to Mississippi, but nothing bad happens to him. It's kind of much the same back in New Orleans. So he bounces around the South. He goes back to Mississippi. He's hitchhiking at night. And he notes that the conversations between him and the unknowing rednecks turn saucy they tend to sex he says all showed morbid curiosity about the sexual life of the negro and all had at base the same stereotyped image of the negro as an inexhaustible sex machine with oversized genitals so john this is a challenge and we're going to accept it you know i would be rather concerned if these rednecks were asking about my dick I would just be thinking, I would hear the deliverance music, and I'd get back in my car and I'd drive away. <laughs> well, you don't own a car because you're an impoverished man in the well, South. I'd get back on my bicycle and just take <laughs> off. I don't care. I'm not going to talk about my penis with a bunch of rednecks. So this stereotype that we all know is as old as the day is long, and stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. And though it is seen as a myth that one race typically has a bigger penis than the other, The numbers, they do not lie. Boston Medical Group, they compiled data from 20 studies on penis size from around the world, and they found flaccid penis length to be 3.61 inches and flaccid penis girth, because the girth is more important, to be 3.66 inches. When erect, the average penis length is 5.16 inches in length, and the average penis girth is 4.59 inches. And that's average male penis length, not by race, just average. Across the board. The range of the average penis size by race is pretty big, with the smallest being 1.6 inches, the largest being 10.2 inches. And they do vary by ethnicity, 
but only when it comes to average size for an ethnic group. So in other words, a man of one ethnicity will always have a larger penis size compared to someone of another ethnic group with a lower penis size. I think you already know where we're going with this. With a lower average size. Yes, sorry. In general, the average penis length is slightly longer in black or African-American men compared to other ethnic or racial groups. The average length in this group is 5.8 inches, but by comparison, the average white or Caucasian dick is only a quarter of a centimeter smaller at 5.7 inch, uh, inches. Yeah, that's the thing. It's only off by about an inch on average. Yeah, I mean, it all counts, though. So the average penis size around men of East Asia is slightly smaller, 5.7 inches. Global average is 5.4 inches. And amongst well. the... That, that's kind of, that's somewhat significant there. Yeah. 0.3 inches smaller. Yeah. Amongst the uh, African-American ethnic group, there appears to be a larger variety of sizes than in whites and Hispanic, which means there are more extremely small or extremely large penises. There is a lot of diversity within racial groups with respect to penis size, just as there are variations in like height and weight amongst men. Some of this variation is due to genetic factors. Some of it is due to environmental factors like, you know, diet and health. But at the end of the day, D and all the men listening, it's not the size of the wave, but it's the motion of the ocean. Thank you. You guys say that, but do you mean it? I've always Um, said the length. I've also had tiny penis. It's never about the length. It's the girth. And if you can shag really well, like you can do. I've had guys with big dicks who can't shag. Well, have you ever had a micro penis? I've never had a true micro penis. I'm talking like no. a baby dick, like never, the size of my pinky. I think I would laugh if I was. Well, what if there's a lot of body. motion? If there's just a little motion, yeah, <laughs> no, but a if, lot of motion. If that guy was a phenomenal lover and he could eat box like the best box in the whole wide world, then he makes up for it. But usually, people with I find people with tiny dicks and big dicks have the same problem: shitty personality. Well, yeah, I got to overcompensate. So, you know, it's interesting. I was reading because there are a lot of factors, not, not just genetics that contribute to penis size, like diet, health and things like that. Um, but hormonal exposure, medical issues, nutrition, uh, there's issues that arise during fetal development and that can all influence your sexual Ooh. development. Um, so there was some, uh, some research that went on with, uh, between... East Asian men, like looking at, they're comparing penis size averages between East Asian men and Asian American men. And they, they found that there's actually notable differences in penis size. <gasps> Big American penis, right? Well, but of Asian American men. Yeah, that's what I mean. I've, maybe it's just, it's, it's health factors, maybe it's environment, but there were notable penis size differences between an East Asian man and an American Asian man. Um, scientists, scientists also revealed that the average penis size has grown over the past 30 years, which that could be due to unhealthy habits such as binging junk food and being mostly sedentary, like most Americans. Have you noticed, though, that um, the Greeks and the Romans were terrified of large penises? They thought they were disgusting. That's why all the statues have tiny wee willy winkles, because that's what they wanted. They were like, a tiny penis is perfect for me. Well, there's many reasons for that. Uh, but yeah, they kind of like made the the large penis like like a like a bestial attribute. Yes, and that's why you see like a satyr. Yeah, they're always like this this like you know <laughs> sex driven. Well, this like sex driven monster with this massive cock. 
So uh, we also had at the start of the show Eddie Murphy doing his little stand-up uh, routine about the Shabonkan people. <laughs> like he's playing into the myth, right? Um, the white man did kind of start the myth of black men having huge cocks. It is kind of true. Well, so, okay, getting back to these studies, though. Yes, let's talk cocks. more about penises. Well, that's the thing. There's like, all, you, you see in like Men's Health and, and BuzzFeed and all this, they, they always put out these like, articles kind of comparing penis size between countries and races. Um, But if you look at the infographics, the listicles and these write-ups, you kind of, a lot of it's based on flawed data, even Kinsey. Like he had like self-assessments. Yeah, I saw that. That was like, and it was a really old, the last time they did the Kinsey one for dicks, it was like 1989 or something. Well, like you can't trust a self-measurement. Fuck no, men lie. Yeah. And so like a lot of these these studies are like smaller non-representative studies. So, I mean, you got to question the data. So Alicia M. Walker, who's a sociologist at Missouri State University, said that there's not much high quality research on average penis sizes overall. I was thinking before when we were you were talking about like environmental factors and stuff like that, like is penis size somewhat genetic? It is. I mean, there, it's one of the factors that can affect sexual development. I've never shagged like a dad and a son combo, but now I wish I'd done it in my youth for science. But <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. Um, so... Modern racial penis stereotypes date back to at least the 15th century when you had European explorers in sub-Saharan Africa commenting on the local men's supposedly enormous genitals. And so... Damn right. Yeah, you know, and, but these, these accounts actually seem to reflect what the ancient Greeks thought. Yeah. That they believed that a massive erect dick was a sign of an animal, like an uncontrollable sexuality, while a small penis was a sign of a civil, like civilized restraint and a rational, intelligent being. And that notion kind of spread through Roman philosophy, medieval Christian art, and kind of early modern proto-science that, that we're seeing now. Um, but, that, but that's the thing. And you think that's rather convenient. You know, it's like a lot of these Romans probably who are, you know, a little bit less endowed. Yeah, but they're less endowed than a lot of the, you know, their slaves and these other people that they consider subhuman. So they're like, oh, well, that's because intelligent people, the enlightened people have smaller penises. I just think it's like because they're marrying horses, they're having fucking huge orgies with Roman showers. So it's easy for them to just be like, oh, what we're doing is fine because we have... Tiny wee willy winkles. Well, I think it's, I but think see it's a way him over to, there would tear you in two. No, I think it's no. a way for them to justify their small cocks. Uh, yeah, I think it is too. I have a small penis, but I have a very large brain. <laughs> so, but that, that's the thing. There's a, you know, the explorers who are going, you know, probably the Dutch, they were going to South Africa and like seeing the Africans for the, these African natives for the first time. It kind of like is a longstanding tradition there of mapping the trope, you know, onto, onto cultures especially cultures that they consider to be lesser than their own. Yeah. So, you know, they're the small-dicked, civilized, superior culture. And these, like, you know, animalistic people have their huge cocks because they're nothing more than animals. And this kind of, you know, flowed directly into the Atlantic slave trade. You know, as white people use the notion of the well-endowed and, and the virile black man, if you look at the term mandingo, that's that's something that you need to control because they'll rape white women. Yeah, you know, yeah. they have like this unbridled sexual urge. 
Um, but the same notion fueled lynch mobs in, in the Reconstruction South. You know, and still, modern racists even bring this up to, the, to this day. You know, and, uh, but, you know, this, this, I guess this trope and this myth of, like, black people just being well endowed and having huge cocks is something that's actually, you know, endorsed by many black men as well. <laughs> I like it, though, because it's kind of like taking your slur and owning it, like the Hungarians... Uh, were called hunks when they first moved over here, and it was it was supposed to be people, Americans looked down on the Hungarians. They were like, "Oh, we'll get a hunk in because they're just like these big, horrible, sweaty men who could build you a wall in a day." And then eventually, the women were like, "Hang on, but were they? Let's get a hunk." But were they in. handsome? No, they're like they were considered like beneath Americans because they couldn't read or write, and all they were good for. So was then, when did labor. the term hunk denote being a handsome man? Because they're all muscly and gleaming with sweat and you're talking about people who had to wear 10 layers of underwear to, uh, to even like to even think about sex was impossible for them. So suddenly, I like it when this happens or when it's like you take a word back, you take it back and make it yours, which well, is what they did. I think this is that they appropriated this myth. Yeah, because how their is own it bad? Benefit. Like, and yeah, it's yeah, one baby. of the only widely accepted black stereotypes that's kind of now seen as a positive one. Yeah. And they they just were going with it. Whereas this is interesting. East Asian men were historically portrayed as virile sexual threats to white women too. But they were like look at how the Japanese acted in the Second World War. Well, that's the thing. You know, Come up on. until the early 20th century, there's a Japanese actor named Sasui Hayakawa who is a Hollywood heartthrob yeah. and he played a wife-stealing neighbor in uh, Cecil D. DeMille's uh, The Cheat. Yeah, he's gorgeous. But then gorgeous. after the racist laws and the social pressures that came along during World War II, um, Asian men in America kind of had to have jobs like laundry and cooking, which are, you know, stereotypically feminine jobs. And then with the anti-Japanese propaganda that was milling about, um, you know, American culture kind of sort of recast these Asian guys as effeminate non-threats. Right, yeah. You know, that's we, how it we, goes. So, you know, very few Asian American men, you know, endorse the stereotype of having a small dick, unlike the black guys. <laughs> but the numbers don't lie. Well, the, I'm, well, the numbers don't lie. But also, I mean, there's a lot of cultural attraction with this. I mean, everybody kind of makes fun of like, you know, tiny penises and Asian people with rice dicks, what they say. Yeah. You know, and, and it's hurtful. But, you know, and many men with East Asian heritage says that's played a role with their, uh, you know, ability to find sexual partners on apps. Oh, because people will just think they have a tiny penis. Yeah. So these stereotypes kind of create, this is a great term that I read in like, uh, psychologist Scott A. uh, McGrill wrote, a Goldilocks zone. Goldilocks. You could say Goldie It's Goldie Cox. In which European men are just right in their mix of masculinity, self-control, and dick size. <laughs> See? <laughs> Keep telling yourself that, yeah. whiteies. <laughs> so there's a great article in uh, the New York Times. It's called The Last Taboo by Wesley Morris. Read the whole thing. It's really good. And he kind of travels the history of pop culture's fear of the black cock. So he found a 1903 article by Baltimore doctor, using that term, Lucy, William Lee Howard called the Negro as a district uh, district ethic factor in civilization. And he argues that in integration was impossible, not just because black people are so-called savages, but they're savages who want to rape white people, white women in particular. 
So he surmised when education will reduce the large size of the Negro's penis, as well as bring about the sensitiveness of the terminal fibers which exist in the Caucasian, then it will also be able to prevent the African's birthright to terminal madness and excess. Well, that's the thing. These, these guys are race, <laughs> race realists. These are people who believe that are innate biological differences between racial groups exist in intelligence, personality, social behavior, and physical differences as well. Vagvikinus. Vagvikinus. But yeah. at the same time, I mean, there's still race realists today. Vagvikinus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but I mean, I'm saying in like the, in the, in like the House of Representatives, we oh, have politicians yeah. who consider themselves race realists that will buy into these like absurd theories. Pseudoscience. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Canadian psychologist and race realist J. Philippe Rushton published a high profile papers in like the 90s in academic journals in the 1990s arguing for the existence of biological racial differences. One of his theories was that black men develop large penises and sex drives, but smaller brains because their environment pushed them towards higher rates of reproduction. While Asian men developed very large brains, but smaller penises. <laughs> and white men, like himself, had, the na- had nature's perfect dick-to-brain balance. Oh, my God. <laughs> not too little, not too much. Wow. But this is like su- pseudoscientific bullshit. I mean, they've, the notion that penis size even correlates to sex drives has no basis in, anything. in, in human sexual development. And that's been proven time and time again. This cock... A mamey, thank you. Pseudoscience, it goes back to slavery. So your white slave-owning master owns your whole body, including your cock. So this is the Foucault idea of sex equals power. Well, that means rape, doesn't it? So from the time of slavery to the civil rights era with intermarriage illegal, black men faced every possible violence, including castration and far worse as both punishment and prevention against e- even presumed sexual insult. So Wesley uses the lynching case of 23-year-old Claude Neal. He was a farmhand in Jackson County, Florida in 1934 as an example of this power play. Claude's accused of rape and murder. He's moved from jail to jail so that the lynch mobs won't find him but eventually they track him down to a jail in Alabama. A crowd of about 3,000 people gather, but a gang of six men will be the ones who torture and kill him. One of them were called, well, I guess we was pretty liquored up. And I ain't like that no more, but we cut off his balls and we made him eat them and say that they was good. Then we cut off his pecker and made him eat that and say that it was good. These are the small dick civilized men. Yes. (laughs) So before Claude's body was strung up over a tree and set on fire, the crowd stabbed him, they spat on him, they ran their cars over his corpse, he was skinned, and his fingers were Uh. cut off and placed in jars by souvenir hunters. This is 1934. Like, Uh. it's it's still, like, in, like, kind of living memory. But this warning is clear. Nothing turns a white man red faster than the fear of a black penis, even when it's only half a centimeter bigger. But we, we did digress about penises for quite a while now. So now we're going to go back to the blackface for a bit. Within, he spent six weeks surviving in the segregated South and it's coming to an end. So John concludes a chapter in Mobile, Alabama with, I concluded that, as in everything else, the atmosphere of a place is entirely different from Negro and white. The Negro sees and reacts differently, not because he is Negro, but because he is suppressed. Fear dims even the sunlight. Which is very eloquent to do. Astute observation there. 
He stops taking his medication. He scrubs his skin raw until pink emerges. But he is wearing the mask. Or was the mask wearing him at this point? Because he keeps taking a damp sponge and dyes, as well as a, a cleanser and Kleenex in his bag for like quick black face looks. Uh, follow John for more beauty tutorials. Click subscribe to him. He says, I was the same man, whether white or black. Yet when I was white, I received the brotherly love smiles and privileges from whites and the hate stares from Negroes. And when I was Negroes, uh, the whites judged me fit for the junkie while the Negroes treated me with great warmth. No shit. No shit, mate. <laughs> How long did he, uh, was he a Negro? Six weeks. It's only six weeks. Yeah. Or he's making he it sound like he was in. doing it for like three years. <laughs> he packs a lot I mean, in. he did, you know, <laughs> he, he, he spanned a lot of cities there. But still, I mean, the way he's acting, it's like, oh, he was like undercover for like two years. So he abandons his black identity by December the 14th. And then he begins submitting all his notes and interviews for what would be a series of articles entitled Journey of Shame for CPM Magazine. In 61, it's published as Black Like Me. It becomes an instant bestseller, selling over a million copies. Although the Southern genteel whites didn't immediately appreciate it. He was subjected to what he called a dirty bath of hatred. Sounds like something Alan Partridge would invent. He returns to his Texas hometown. He's actually hanged in effigy. His parents received threats on his life. Any day now, he heard a mob would come and castrate him. He sends his wife and children to Mexico and his parents sold their property and they went into exile too. It's like everyone's lives are ruined by this, John. I hope you know what you've done. Our lives are ruined. Well, it's we kind have of to move baffling to that they're safer in Mexico than they are in Texas. <laughs> yeah. So he remains behind to like kind of pack up his studio and he wonders, is tonight the night the shotgun blasts through the window? He soon moves to Mexico too. And this is when he like turns it all into a book. So Black Like Me uh, disabused the idea that minorities were acting out of paranoia, says Gerald Early. He was a black scholar at Washington University. He said there was this idea that black people said certain things about racism and one rather expected them to say these things. Griffin revealed that what they were saying was true. It took someone from outside coming in to do that. And what he went through gave the book a remarkable sincerity. Although that you could even say, yeah, there's pictures of him like darkening and being in blackface, but there's not a picture of him every day for six weeks. He could have just been like imagining a lot of this. Or he just did that like, you know, for a week. Yes. And then just kind of wrote about his experiences. I mean, the other thing that's kind of, I guess, makes me somewhat skeptical. There's no, how many, how much photographic evidence is there? There's not much. How many videos did he make? Zero. Yeah, so it's kind of, I do question, was it a full six weeks where he immersed himself in, you know, as like a Negro? Or was it like maybe a week or a few days in each city just experiencing it? Yeah, we'll never know. We have to take his word for it. Still, I'm not, I'm not discounting the guy had balls that he had to move around in a wheelbarrow because I can't imagine anyone doing this. He becomes part of the civil rights movement. He befriends black spokesman uh, from Dick. Love that name. Dick Gregory to Martin Luther King Jr. And he gives more than a thousand lectures about what he went through. So the Ku Klux Klan, uh, as sponsored by the Kardashians, we uh, talked all about that in episodes 880 and 881. They catch up to John Griffin on a moonless night on a back road in 1964. They brutally beat him with chains until he is really black and blue and they leave him for dead. 
And this same year, I also saw a movie of the same name be released, which is apparently so bad, even Rotten Tomatoes didn't like recognize. There's not even a rating on Rotten Tomatoes. For, wait, for Black Like Me? Yeah, there isn't even a rating. But well, who's in the movie? No one that I'd heard of. But I do want to see it because I think it'll be very funny. You have to check that out. I've never even heard of it. I didn't know there was a movie. So with the growing civil rights movement, he stops giving lectures because he says he finds it absurd for a white man to speak for the black people. Yeah. (laughs) But beyond the book into the 70s, he kind of struggles to move past it. Uh, In 1972, osteomyelitis, which is a funny name for a very horrible disease. This is where an infection spreads to your bone tissue. It's re-emerging of his war wounds, right? It sees him back in a wheelchair. And in 1980, he actually dies at the age of 60 of heart failure, which is very young. He's young. The year before, he had written a postscript to new editions of Black Like Me. And he writes, I was judged entirely by my pigmentation and not by my qualities as a human individual. These simple facts were indisputable. Yet many whites did not seem to comprehend this or were unwilling to accept the truth or flatly denied it. My experience as a Negro merely substantiated an experiential truth known by all black people and all persons of color universally, that white majority cultures discriminate against minorities slowly on the basis of skin color. Yeah, big surprise there. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, I wonder, like, so he's friends with all these, like, civil rights leaders. I wonder what their take on what his stunt. Oh, they all loved him. They all loved him. Like, they... Were they just like, are you fucking insane? No, they all thought that what he'd done was, like, a really good step for civil rights. I wonder how that would be uh, interpreted now. They said that the book was really good for whites. But they didn't say the book was really good for blacks. You'd think a lot of black people would be, like, upset about it. Nowadays, yeah, but I think at that time well, it was like everything I would be was still a bit segregated. Riled. I'd be like, oh, okay, so you're gonna, you know, dress up as a Hasidic Jew and like yeah. <laughs> infiltrate the Jewish community. I mean, oh, I just would listen be... to all the hacking that goes on. Yeah, <laughs> I just love the food. <laughs> I do love the food. I'm at Cantor's every week if I could. His wife, Elizabeth Ann, she remarries, this is a weird thing, to author Robert Bonanzi. And together, he's like a super fan of John Griffin. And together they release more articles and essays by her former husband, including a biography called Man in the Mirror, John Howard Griffin and the Story of Black Like Me. Robert is super into this. Robert wrote, Black Like Me remains important for several reasons. It's a useful historical document about the segregated era, which is still shocking to younger readers. It's also a truthful journal in which he admits to his own racism with which white readers can identify and perhaps begin to face their own denial of prejudice. Finally, it's a well-written literary text that predates the non-fiction novels of Mailer, Capote, Tom Wilfe, and others. Do you think uh, the Fun widow uh, made the uh, new husband like Wear blackface. Oh yeah, and then fuck (laughs) her. I'm just wondering, like, did she have to like, you know, put on a John mask, wear blackface? Yes. Do a little bit of role playing. Yes. (laughs) So here's the root of the Kuntakenti root, though. Is blackface actually really racist? And by him doing blackface, does this render his like social experiment as meaningless? I don't think it it renders it meaningless, but it does. It is somewhat problematic that he would go to that kind of length. He was only in an era where blackface was only just starting to be racist, though. Because before that, blackface was super popular. Yeah. I mean, I think people... 
I don't think it was as popular as it was back in like the 1920s. No, we're gonna we're gonna start. But still, I, I, I imagine in Mississippi they still thought it was hilarious. Although the exact moment when blackface originated isn't known, its roots uh, date back to centuries-old European theatrical productions, most famously uh, Shakespeare's Othello. You can look up pictures of that. The practice then began in the United States in the 18th century when European immigrants brought the genre over and they performed in seaports along the Northeast. Uh, Thomas Dartmouth Rice, he was an actor born in New York, is considered the father of minstrelry, which is a word. After reportedly traveling to the South and observing slaves, uh, Rice developed a black stage character called Jim Crow in 1830. So he had quick dance moves and exaggerated African-American vernacular, buffoonish behavior, and he founds a new genre of radicalized song and dances, blackface minstrel shows, which became central to American entertainment in the North and the South. Some of the most famous ones were obviously his Jim Crow. He's a rural dancing fool and kind of tattered clothing. The Mammy, which is like, I know that from Steel on From the Ville. An overweight and loud mother figure. And Zip Coon, a flamboyantly dressed man who used sophisticated words incorrectly. So I'm probably most like him. Minstrel shows were usually the only depiction of black life that white audiences saw, and it kind of presents enslaved Africans as the butt of jokes, and this desensitized white Americans to like the horrors of slavery. The performances also promoted demeaning stereotypes of black people that helped confirm white people's notions of superiority, because that's what we love to do. You know, the uh, representation of these characters, like, Jim Crow and Mammy and Zip Coon and all that. You ever see those Piccaninny figurines? Oh, yeah. And one of my friends, Marsha, her mom collected them. She had a whole cabinet, like yeah. a wall cabinet. Of I them. remember I had a friend in high school, like his mom, that was her thing. She collected, I didn't really, I knew they were racist. I mean, but I didn't realize that, I mean, they're, they're expensive collectibles. I know. But I think she got them from her grandmother who collected them. And they had like two curio cabinets just filled with these Piccadilly figurines. And me and Kessler used to make fun of this kid all the time. Like, well, can we play with your mom's? He's like, don't touch them. If you break one, she'll freak out. We're like, okay. And then we'd take the Piccadilly figurines. And move them around. <laughs> and put them, like, move them around or, or like, you know, he would freak out about it. He wouldn't even let us in the room where the figurines were kept. <laughs> we would get stoned and like look at them and just laugh at them. Well, so this whole genre of, of, of being a black minstrel is meant as comedy. And it was performed by white men. And when there were female characters, the male performers cross-dressed while wearing blackface. Well, that's Shakespeare. Yeah, women, which women is aren't allowed from on Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. And while the earliest minstrel performances were done as one-man shows, after the Civil War... They came together in like full minstrel troops, transforming this into like a large performance. It was really Birth of the Nation, that terrible film. It saw blackface move from stage to screen. And even though some black performers did black up at the time. Which is really bizarre. It was mainly a white man's game. Although Judy Garland and Shirley Temple would also don blackface at one time or another. Al Johnson, we all know him, a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant who came to New York as a child. He becomes one of the most influential blackface stars of the 20th century, including his uh, 1927 hit film, The Jazz Singer. Remade by Neil Diamond. <laughs> Excellent movie. Um, you know, so a lot of the people like 
when you think about a black person performing a blackface, you're like, well, this is just completely bizarre. How can this even happen? Well, that was one of the only ways they could even get on stage. Yeah, and I could kind of see time. it being good. Well, I could see it being very demeaning, but I mean, it's well, a means no, I to mean, an end. I think it would be, uh, what I mean by good is like, I would go there and like flip it on its head. I think some did. Um, yeah. William Henry, Master Juba Lane, is considered the single most influential performer in the 19th century dance. And he's credited with inventing tap. Uh, and he was a black man who performed in blackface. Uh, but it was only after his fame reached like international proportions that he was allowed to tour with an all-white minstrel troupe and to perform without blackface. That's cool. I'm also good. I used to do tap. Sometimes in blackface? I think, did you wear blackface? No, I kind of wish we would, and maybe I would have stuck at it for longer years <laughs> than what I did. But it's tap is very fun. It's kind of like I think it would be good for people who are on the spectrum because it's all like very numbers based. It's kind of like you're having a seizure. It is like you're having a seizure, but in like to a rhythmic beat. The appeal of blackface, it dwindles after the 30s. We got the rise of the civil rights movement, but it does remain a part of America's national culture. It's a feature of parties, Halloween costumes, comedy sketches, and at times, fashion. Like there's definitely like celebrities when they'll say that, like, you know, they'll white up. Like I know there's always been controversies with like Ariana Grande and like her ever-changing skin skin color. It's kind of like that. Well, that's the thing. You look at, uh, I think I sent you a a meme or a reel of uh, Sammy Sosa. And they showed him, like oh, his, yeah, yeah his, his skin whitening. Look at Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of, I, I definitely think there's, there's some kind of cultural problems going on there in, in his decision. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure if he's doing it to be more appealing or maybe it's kind of like a, uh, like people that are obsessed with plastic surgery. You know, it's like yeah. you know, body dysmorphia. But there are a lot of a lot of famous actors and comedians that have worn blackface at one time. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of them you're going to find very shocking because I didn't know about this. But comedian Billy Crystal was criticized in 2012. 2012. Is that That's when he did it? not even that long ago. No, I mean, he uh, back in like when he was on uh, uh, Saturday Night Live, he used to do Sammy Davis Jr. in blackface. And that was in the in the eighties, early eighties, late seventies. Still, I don't think it was appropriate then. But in twenty twelve, I think you should know better. He was I, definitely criticized for that. I kind of have a hot, hot, like a hot spot, a soft spot for Billy Crystal though, because his book about his dad dying when my dad was dying was a huge help. So thank you, Billy Crystal. Like you can get a free pass for this. Still, one. still doesn't absolve him of blackface he and gets, being an annoying cunt. What I like Billy Crystal. He's so good in Hell's Moving Castle. He's like one of the best characters. Ugh. Uh, Missouri Governor Mel Carnahan had to apologize in 2000 for a picture of him and his brother singing in a blackface quartet in 1960. So one of his political opponents just pulled this up and here he is like backtracking. Would love to do that. Have that in my back pocket against an enemy to be used at any moment in time. Well, he died in a plane crash, but he still won the Senate seat anyway. Hey! <laughs> uh, actor Ted Danson That's was accused of being one. racist and tasteless for performing a skit in blackface using the N-word. And even joking about his sex life with, uh, with his then-girlfriend, Whoopi. Whoopi says it was fine for him to do blackface, though. 
Yeah, I don't think she I minded, but I think that. a lot of people were offended. It was yeah. at a Friars Club roast, 93. I've always thought they were just the weirdest couple. You would never put Ted Danson yeah, I, and Whoopi Goldberg A lot together. of people don't even believe, or first of all, don't even remember that they dated. It's the, like the only thing I can remember about weird. both of them, apart from the fact that obviously she kind of has sex with Patrick Swayze in Ghost. That's it. Yeah, but she, not in real life. No, but in Ghost. That's why I said in Ghost. Yeah, but look what she turned into now. Not attractive at all. Whereas Ted Danson, he's handsome older, man. but I bet you he could still get some ass. Fuck yeah, he's a handsome man. One of the more disastrous critiques of blackface was from black actor Ben Vereen. I don't know if you know who that is, but no. he was a famous dancer, uh, probably 70s and 80s. Uh, ben Vereen was at President Ronald... No, actually, he was before that. He was probably 60s, but uh, still going throughout, I think, to like the 90s when he died. But Ben Vereen was at President Ronald Reagan's inauguration, and... He performed there, and his intent was to, was to do a tribute to a legendary black vaudevillian, Burt Williams, who was forced to wear blackface to stay employed. In order to be on the stage, he had to be a black man in blackface. So he first danced, and he sang Waiting for the, the Robert E. Lee before a cheering GOP audience, along with the president, Reagan, and First Lady Nancy. He then stripped the blackface off while singing Nobody, I Ain't Never Got Nothing From Nobody No Time, to show the pain of blackface and the exploitation of African Americans. But ABC omitted the second part oh. where he was taking off the blackface. So when they showed it, it only showed the minstrel segment. So Vereen, who at the time was one of the nation's top black actors, was facing an immediate backlash from all the African Americans who saw this as him just, you know, making, like, ridiculing black people. I bet Nancy Blowjob Queen took him in the back and made him feel better instantly. <laughs> well, Vereen said he was promised by ABC that both parts would be shown and that he was sabotaged. I think he was. Eddie Murphy, he's trafficked a lot of African American stereotypes for laughs. Buckwheat. His buckwheat impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of black scholars say that's black blackface. That's what that is. Eddie Murphy can get away with it. Like a lot of his things, you could say Eddie Murphy is like really racist from, especially like what his Chinaman impression in like Delirious. Well, yeah. People think it's racist. It's like yeah, it was just comedy back then. All right. <laughs> I don't know how that would sit now. A lot of that comedy. I, I think still, it would. I still I find it hilarious, but I think a lot of people would be very offended. Now. I don't even think Richard Pryor would go down aged, well with the kids. He hasn't aged well. It, no, it has aged well because it's still hilarious. I think it's hilarious, but I don't think it's <laughs> aged well with the hypersensitivity well, of uh, this generation. Um, it's not. Stop, you've got to stop seeing this generation because it's not. Not everyone in that generation is super fucking sensitive. I think Gen there Z, are a lot of c cool. Like tuned in kids, there is always cool. I would say tuned on in average, kids in every generation. Gen Z is hypersensitive, and millennials too, compared to like previous generations. You say that, but I'm also a millennial, yeah, but I and think, I worked with millennials, yeah, but I don't think and we you're, were you're way not worse. average. No, I worked you're with people average. who weren't even goths, who weren't even rockers, and we were all had the same you're, similar South Park sense of humor. Yeah, an aberration. I think on average, Gen <laughs> Z people are very hypersensitive, and they're also into pronouns, and they're into Just a lot some. of things that like, I, you could say some, but I think it's like more than some. I'd say it's probably over half. Uh, well, just what? Just you based on observation? It's no, not. just reading about it. I think there's a lot of hypersensitivity amongst this generation. Like Gen Z, and definitely among, amongst millennials compared to previous well, generations. Well, it's funny like because Gen every generation shits on the generation below them. So that's all I'm saying. 
I don't know. I mean, I I, I would have, say, always have hope in the I kids. would say there's definitely it's a more sensitive snowflake era that we live in today than we did before. You you can say that, but there's definitely well, that's that's of why I don't generation. think Eddie Murphy's brand of comedy would be as popular now. I mean, but the kids also have Shrek and they have Naughty Professor. What cancel? So, col- what do what, they need? Is what like cancel culture did they have back in 1990? There was always people being canceled. People not, have always not been not to canceled. the extent of today. Well, no, it's different. And a lot of it I do yeah. disagree with. But I think to tarnish all of them and say that they're... I'm not like, tarnishing. I'm just, I'm, I'm just being factual. I think it's like... it's it's a We live in a more sensitive era than we than we ever have in the past. Bring back the 1970s dads to tell it like it is. So this is interesting too. So Dave Chappelle, if people recall back in like... What was that? Like 2011, 2010? Um, when his... He was like... His show, the Dave Chappelle show, was so popular. I mean, he was—he walked away from a fifty million dollar contract with Comedy Central, and people were like, "What happened? Like, why did he walk away from it?" And a lot of you know, the—I think the story was that he was just over overwhelmed with fame, and he just left, and he went to South Africa and became in touch with his blackness, and just needed some time to kind of be out of Hollywood. Well. A lot of people say one of the things that was, a, I guess, a watershed moment for Chappelle was the Pixies sketch in the third season of his show, which I never knew about this one. But there was a sketch that he had written about magic Pixies oh. that, um, that embody stereotypes about races. So the black Pixie, which is played by Chappelle, wears blackface and tries to convince blacks to act in stereotypical ways. Now, Chappelle thought this sketch was hilarious, the kind of things his friends would laugh at. But at the taping, a spectator, a white man, was laughing particularly loud and very long at every stereotypical, like, stereotype joke. And his laughter really struck Chappelle as wrong. And he was wondering if, like, his show had gone from sending up stereotypes to actually reinforcing them. But stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason because there's an element of truth to it. Like, I'm always going to laugh at a French person in a striped shirt with a beret on carrying a French baguette and there's a string of garlic around the neck. That's always going to be fucking funny to me. Like, all the jokes on airplane are classic stereotypes for a reason. But is, but is that hurtful, though, to some people? And I think that's that's the thing. It's not I hurtful think, to the French, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know if it is, but I think a lot of these stereotypes that he was lampooning, supposedly in this skit, were actually, you know, maybe they are very hurtful to black people and, and white people. White people who are, like, you know, maybe not overtly racist might find it hilarious. I love the fact that he's blaming this like one white man who was at the craft services, maybe enjoying one or two donuts for like him turning down $50 million. He's like, it was this white guy that made me do it. Well, I don't think it was just that, but I think this might've <laughs> no, been, the, I think this might've been the nail in the coffin, you know, like the, the, the straw right here. Um, he said when he was watching this guy laugh, it was really making him feel more and more uncomfortable. He's like, as a matter of fact, that was the last thing I shot before I told myself, I got to take a fucking time out. Been doing this too long. It's like my head almost exploded. Oh, boo-hoo. Boo-hoo. Did you have to turn down a $50 million contract because you're just like, you've gone too far in comedy? Have you, Dave Chappelle? Boo-hoo-hoo. I think he walked away from it. I think it was just like, you know, I don't know if this is actually funny anymore. Oh, my God. Just like, fuck off. 
Like they did eventually air the sketch on a shortened three episode third season that was hosted by Charlie Murphy. Um, but the weirdest celebrity blackface that I had never previously known about, Joni Mitchell. Seriously? Did you know she's fucking touring at the minute? She's like ancient. Well, she's the like thing 90. is, she's shameless about this, actually. Oh. Yeah, so Joni Mitchell is touring right now, and she just actually won a Grammy. Did she? Yeah, she won the Best Folk Album at the uh, 66 oh, well, who else is Annual Grammy Awards. Who else is uh, there are a lot of people. Can Paul, I also... She was up against Paul Simon. Fuck him. Joni Mitchell's better than Paul Simon. But I would also like to say that uh, I did rather enjoy Miley Cyrus at the Grammys this year. I have been gushing about her. I'm not even a Miley Cyrus fan. I just liked her energy. She was like a new Tina Turner, which is what we need. The world Ugh. needs. She was I'll, great. Hard pass on that one. Um, I do love her voice, though. Speaking <laughs> voice. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> it's got the same tone as diarrhea. Um, she, re- she recorded this album, uh, Joni Mitchell at Newport. It was a live album that came out. Uh, she did it last in 2022, but it was released last July. So she got Best Folk Album for that. And she performed at the award ceremony for the first time. I know, and they were all sat down because she's so fucking ancient that they had to like lynch her out down, the coffin. Yeah. Well, I think she's got some kind of spinal thing. Like, yeah, being fucking old will give you a spinal thing. So in the 70s, Joni Mitchell used her alter ego, a black male pimp, to push against critics who diminished her gender and because she didn't feel like a white person. Have you ever heard of this? I'm kind of into this. I never knew about it. So Mitchell's association with black music is complicated. You know, she's written songs about the cultural appropriation of black musical forms by white musicians over the years. Um... She's also very heavily influenced by jazz and blues. But on the other hand, she's done blackface on her album covers, which is, you know, considered problematic. So her use of blackface started in 1976. That was the year when she first dressed up as a black male pimp alter ego called Art Nouveau. She's doing Drag King before Drag King was even a thing. It was a character that she revisited over the following next six years every now and then. Her reasons for becoming a street smart male black sex hustler in a sharp suit with gold jewelry um, were varied. So by appearing in blackface, an Afro wig and a wide mustache, I'm going to post a picture of the, the site. You would think she's a privileged white person perpetuating a damaging black stereotype. And I think some people did take it that way. But she kind of has a more innocent perspective on it. Well, first of all, she was doing it for a fancy dress party initially. So she was walking down Hollywood Boulevard in, uh, in the autumn of 76, trying to f- figure out like what she's going to wear this Halloween party that was being thrown by a bass musician, Leland Sklar. Have you ever heard of this guy? I don't know. Don't Familiar name, but uh, he's like a session musician, touring musician with James Taylor, Jackson Brown, yeah. Linda Ronstadt. Phil Collins, Toto. She said she saw a guy, a black guy with a beautiful spirit walking with a bop. And as he went by her, he turned around and said, mm-mm, looking good, sister, looking good. She said, I just felt so good after you said that. And his spirit came inside of me. And so I started walking like him. I bought a black wig. I bought sideburns and a mustache. And I and bought some makeup. And I was like, I'm going as him. I kind of like this. Yeah. Yeah. And so she dressed as this character on her cover of her 1977 record, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. Uh, she kind of did it on purpose. 
uh, because she the photo, the photographer who was taking the the pictures for New York Magazine or she told New York Magazine this the, the photographer that was taking the pictures she wasn't a fan of him so she just wanted to, she didn't want him to take her image. Uh, yeah, I kind of like this. He's very <laughs> rebellious. Yeah, um, and she did one of her uh, in her 1980 concert film Shadows and Light. He's I guess Art Nouveau is transposed with her as she's singing a, a verse of Furry Sings the Blues. And then the final time she did it, uh, appeared as Nouveau, was an unreleased 1982 short film called The Black Cat in the Black Mouse Socks. But so there's another reason why she felt compelled to create Nouveau, to counter criticism in the music press. So apparently at the time, Rolling Stone had labeled her as old and free with her affections due to all these relationships she had with people in the industry. And she was offended. And so she created this alter ego as like a defense mechanism. Yeah, I get that as well. Yeah. So rather than being this subservient, controlled woman, she was the opposite, a strong, powerful man who controlled women. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of into she her She's like playing reasoning. with archetypes. I think also... I give her like a, a kind of a bit more leeway. She's a, a very talented artist, songwriter, and she creates worlds. So she's just created another world. Yeah. I mean, it's it's definitely one. It, it'd be hilarious if she brought that character back today. Uh, I would totally On go, the stage at the Grammys. I would go to the bowl to see her <laughs> do blackface and sing her folk songs. It'd be amazing. So there are lots of people, especially celebrities or people in positions of power, they claim ignorance to the history of blackface when they're caught masquerading in it. Some of that ignorance then and now, it appears willful, just like in the case of Joni. And some of it doesn't appear to be ignorance at all. Well, you know, a slight majority of Americans, I was reading about this, 53% think it's generally unacceptable for a white person to use makeup to darken their skin or to appear to be a different race as part of a Halloween costume including 37% who say this is never acceptable. But one in three, which is 34%, say it's either always or sometimes acceptable. (laughs) You would think it would be a little higher than just a slight majority. Uh, White adults are about twice as likely as black adults to say the use of blackface as part of a Halloween costume can be acceptable. See, there you go. So 39% of whites hold this view versus 19% of blacks and Hispanics. Or blacks. Hispanics kind of fall in the middle. They're around 28% saying it's sometimes yeah. acceptable. All right. So if you said to them, I'm going to come to the party dressed as you, Jose, Jose would be like, that is fucking awesome, man. <laughs> yeah. I wonder <laughs> if they would be cool about it. <laughs> now, there's also, as you can imagine, partisan gaps here, political partisan gaps. Mm. So half of Republicans... 51% say it is acceptable oh my God. <laughs> to wear blackface to a Halloween, Halloween party. Um, because they've all done it in college. Yeah, 51%. By contrast, a majority of Democrats, uh, 67%, say blackface is never acceptable. Although, Although some of them have done it in well, college. Yeah. You know, 21% say it's sometimes, but most of them say it's never acceptable. So Black Like Me remains an important historical document, maybe not one that could be replicated in this day and age, but it's a social study that proves that you can't change the color of your skin, but you can change the perception of it. And one of the reasons it still resonates now, it's like more than 50 years later, it's because the true topic is really humanity and it's not race. 
And as long as we, you know, persecute and fear monger and spread hatred amongst anyone else for simple reasons, like maybe their skin tone or their religion, then black like me will always have like a kind of sad place in modern popular culture. And I really do want to see the film. I'm yeah, like, I want to shit. check out the film now. I just want to see the, um, the, the montage of when he starts blackening up, which I think would be hilarious. I could just hear like he's a maniac, maniac he's just on like, the like floor the mu- yeah. as he's like darkening his skin. I think Soul and Man. I'm a Soul Man. Do, 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 do. He's putting I'm on the. Soul uh, man. Well, yeah, that we should work. watch that movie too. I want to watch. But both. just for the record, I just want to make sure this is clear. Sick and Wrong does not endorse wearing blackface as part of a Halloween costume. Not for Halloween, but if you think it's really, 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 really funny, and your name is Johnny Mitchell, we'll do it. We'll go with it. <laughs> if you're Johnny Mitchell, I will give you a pass. People, this is episode 932 here, Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is that number. But first, here's a quick message from Adam and Eve. You can make this Valentine's Day one that you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from adamandeve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to adamandeve.com and you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless selection of adult DVDs. And there's more. With every order, you'll receive our romance kit free. Our romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. Oh no. We'll also throw in free shipping on your entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter offer code DIDDLE. D-I-D-D-L-E. That's DIDDLE at adamandeve.com. People, you can call the Sick and Wrong Hotline, 323-522-4032. I do want to encourage you to do this because I'm trying to build a backlog so we have a bunch of calls to play. Um, you can also just email us an MP3. Either way, works for us. Uh, podcast at gmail.com. So the first call we have here is uh, from Shelly, uh, relatively new listener, called in uh, a few weeks ago um, about a uh, Tinder date. Remember? With yeah, with dog? the dog and the tampons. Yeah. She's really cute. Yeah. So here, here she's calling back in about an autistic kid. Hi, it's Shelly again. I wanted um, to tell you a story about the, like, one autistic kid <laughs> in my uh, high school class. And what? he would always wear, like, teeth. But you didn't have any autistic kids in your high school class? Do they do that in America? No, they go to a special school. They don't go to your oh, no, school. we have it. They don't go to a special school? I think it depends the severity of the autism. Like where they are in the nah, spectrum. Man, they go to a special school in Britain. They don't go to school with the regulars. We have, we have like, you don't even have Down syndrome kids. They go to a special school. Yeah, that's, that is just harsh. You don't mainstream kids. No, because they need special attention. So they go well, we had to a, a special school. We had special education teachers that taught these kids. They had, you know, classrooms yeah, in, in the basement. School? No, they had their classes oh, in right, the basement. Oh, right, so you ostracize them to a basement. Well, no, but Instead they, of giving them their own fucking school. They were still in gym class. They still, play, you know, they still played sports. I bet the I mean, the ones that really were, like, severely autistic would have to be in a separate school. But, no, I mean, we had, uh, you know, we had kids. I remember this one kid, Tom Davis. 
I wonder what ever happened to him. I like Tom Davis. Was he, his brother Jonathan Davis of the band Khan by any chance? No, but that would have been cool. The Tom Davis, I remember from what I heard, and this might just be completely made up, but this is the, the hearsay story. And when he was a kid, I guess his dad or his mom, one of them, locked him in a closet and forgot about it and left him in there for like 10 days. And when he came out, <laughs> he was, he was retarded. He, he came out, he was just kind of whacked. He wasn't retarded to the sense that, you know, in the sense that like, you know, he could communicate. He was I mean, Forrest Gump level. Yeah, he was kind of like that. So anyway, during, cl- during class, like during the school day, <laughs> As soon as class got out, Tom Davis would run and like dodge in between people, jerking under people in the hallway like all the way to get the door to hold the door open for everyone. That is very sweet. They all have, well, not all of them because some of them become serial killers, but a lot of them do have very sweet hearts. They're kind of like a puppy, like a beagle. I always thought that, I always thought it was nice. A lot of kids fucked with him and I would get really upset. I would say stuff because it's like. He's, in, he's like mess, a puppy. Why mess with him? Yeah. And that's his thing. He likes to hold the door open for people and like greet people as they walk by. You know what would have been really nice? And it would have been like an American movie on the last day of high school if you'd have all held him back and then you all held the door open so he could leave. I think and then it, everyone would clap. I think it would have freaked out. No, I think you would have been like, yeah, this, this is my life now. Now, you know, I remember he would, during lunch, he had like, he was really into the Detroit Tigers. Oh, I don't want to hear, is it going to be disgusting? No, Detroit Tigers. Right. He was in Detroit Tigers and he would just be out, you know, in the in the back because we used to smoke kind of by the tree. Um, we were just in like off. You could off, smoke in school. Not on the property of the school. When I first started, you could. You could smoke at the, the back, Holy like the shit. back wall. But then off, as, you know, as... I think when I was a, a sophomore or junior when I started smoking, you had to go to this oak tree, which I'd was kind expelled. of off. It was off the campus. But anyway, you'd see Tom Davis just with his like catcher's mitt and his baseball, throwing it up in the air and like naming every single player and every stat of these players as he was catching. I mean, it was he was definitely autistic. Are you sure he's not he, your brother-in-law, Ja? Sounds like Ja. <laughs> no, I mean this this kid was playing by himself. Oh, like throwing I. the ball to himself oh, and like uh, I'm, I'm playing sure, with his ball by himself. I'm, I'm sure you're having you. some kind of fantasy about this autistic kid. I'm fucking not <laughs> because I went to a normal school in Britain where special people go to their own school with their own resources. And the only time I ever mingled with them was the horrible flapjack moment, which has scarred me for life and could also explain why I don't like them either. So that's where they, they belong in their own school. See this, And I belong in my school. This is called segregation. They deserve so the, the their whole, own school. The whole meaning of black like me is completely lost. No, sorry. They deserve their own school because they deserve better teaching than what our we school could give We had teachers. We had a special education department that taught these kids. But yet it didn't make them feel different. They are still in high school. They still participate in sports and they could go to they could go to dances if they wanted to i would also like to point out here that i did go to a grammar school i didn't go to a comprehensive so maybe the comprehensive had special special kids but like no fucking way could you go to a grammar school and be fucking special because you have to sit an exam to get into that school like could you imagine could you Um, imagine what they they had maybe they had a special exam there's no such thing (laughs) that is like mom clearly made him that was like, hi, I'm autistic, so people wouldn't bully him because he was put in normal classes for some reason because he was really good at math, like all autists are. 
Um, he was it's like, like Rain Man. Or whatever. Just classic autistic kid. And he was sat next to me in the very back of the class. And one day he started like rubbing his belly very sensually <laughs> and started audibly moaning. And I watched as his like hand slowly went down into his pants. No. And I just sat there in fear <laughs> while this autistic kid got off next to me. And he finished. I, that was clear by his moaning. No. Um, well, okay. Now, if a kid was was masturbating in class, he wouldn't be allowed to be in the normal school. He needs a special school for the, wankers. Yeah, this kid should go to the wanker school. Like, that's you're not supposed to do this. My question is, was he staring at you, Shelley, while he was doing <laughs> it? I, I, right. I would have been a little turncoat bitch. And I would have been like, miss, miss. You would have told on him? Sir, sir, he's doing it. Sir, sir. Yeah, fucking 100%. Yeah, right. You would have finished him off. Fuck no. Because <laughs> I would have been disgusted that I had to sit next to him anyways. Would you be worried if it was going to be like a science of a lambs type thing where he just throws the ejaculate? Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that till yeah, just now. I would be freaked out by that 100 percent, sir sir miss sir yeah i would have like grabbed a fire extinguisher hose him down gross at the end of class i i ended up telling the teacher what had happened and he was expelled from school for a couple weeks and when he came back he had to have like an adult supervisor like walk him to class and sit next to him in class because i was just so freaked out i I couldn't sit next to him anymore (laughs) I don't blame you. Um, but thank you, guys. Keep it sick. Keep it long. Bye. You know, don't they make like little, you know, on Pornhub, you can do a search for like a porn with this exact scenario. What, spacker masturbating as girl Maybe not a spacker, but like a dude masturbating in class to a girl. Unwillingly. And the girl doesn't like it. Yeah. yeah that's kind of called, it's, it's, it's not rape, but it is. Well, it's definitely like sexual harassment. It's a sexual harassment. Oh, my God. <laughs> this is why yeah, I'm special su- schools. I'm surprised they let this kid back in. Because you can't, if the kid is, I guess, competent enough to be mainstream, they'll let you be in the in the school. I, I got to say, there were some kids, special kids in our school that probably shouldn't have been mainstream. Okay. <laughs> well, Dougie, Dougie, Dougie was like 24, 25 when he finally graduated. It's like, why don't you put him in a special school at that I mean, point? even uh, from my many years listening to From the Ville now, well, many years, and many times listening to From the Ville, I, the fact they let even Steele graduate with, with his, uh, his uh, career guidance counselor told him he could become a rodeo clown. <laughs> Steele, I think, had a few of those special classes. <laughs> All right, the next call we have here is from Evil Bunny. Nice. Hi, guys. This is Allison in Rhode Island. Evil Bunny here. I just wanted to call in with a story I know about Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper. And I'm really sorry to hear that Mojo Nixon died because I loved Mojo Nixon. Same. Saw them play in the 80s, and it was just complete fun madness anyway i had i had a roommate who was from lex was was from kentucky she was from richmond kentucky but she had lots of friends in lexington which was the college town in uh the wild college town in kentucky and um whenever mojo and skid would come play in lexington which they did apparently quite often they would stay at these guys' house 
and just party. And they were insane. He used to apparently, Mojo Nixon used to apparently leave um, answering machine messages uh, like, um, I've got so-and-so tied to the bed and I'm tickling his feet. Needs to cackle. Um, they were great. And I just, I really love those three albums that they did. And they're just so fun. I love Transylvania and Christmas, and, which is uh, harmonica and bongos doing Joy to the World in a minor key from Frenzy. And I hate banks and stuff and Martha's Muffin and going to put my face on a nuclear bomb and Elvis is everywhere. Oh, they're just great. Um, anyway, these guys were truly kind of insane in a, in a great way. Yeah. Very cool. You don't really ha- see music like this as much anymore. No, it was definitely, Mojo it, Nixon was definitely an original. It was ultra and just, you know, um, just very rebellious at the time. It just, it, it had that punk rock ethos. I love the album. I actually saw him that year when uh, um, he did the album with uh, Jello. Jello. Yeah, it's a great album too. Yeah. Pra- that's what's very, called, like, Prairie. You can definitely tell that. Prairie Home Invasion. Yeah, you can definitely tell that Jello had the, Jello had the, like, uh, the rains. Well, I think it was definitely Jello influenced. Oh, 100%. But it's a great, the, the song, uh, Will the Fetus Be Aborted? Yeah, it's I like a great one. song. Yeah. I remember seeing him that year. That's the only time I saw Mojo Nixon. I've seen Jello a few times, but but yeah, you don't really have uh, per- performers like this anymore. He really reminds me of like, um, I always say that Hazel Adkins was the first ever punk performer. Punk didn't I'm, begin until Hazel. So, yeah. He was the OG. Didn't begin in Britain, despite what people think. It was fucking Hazel. And I've always thought that uh, Mojo Nixon was like the, just the love child of Hazel. Like, this is what you get. If, if Hazel Nixon could have like, you know, had a few more brain cells, you're going to get Mojo Nixon. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Well, very insane. Um, oh, he's apparently up for a good time. Anyway, um, I'm really sorry to hear about Mojo because he was a one-off. He was great. And uh, so I hope you play a good Mojo and Skid song for this week and uh, to mourn him. And uh, love you guys. Keep it sick, keep it wrong. And uh, have a good time. Bye. Thank you there, Evil Bunny. We will end the show with a Mojo song. Yeah, can all the good rockers stop dying? And can, like, Paul McCartney just fucking die already? I'm sick of it. And I just kind of feel like every, pretty much every sick and wrong song of the week is because of one of our, you know, preferred artist dies yeah i mean like you know, one of our famous our favorite artists just died this week so now we gotta play one of his songs it like sucks that wayne kramer's gone and now fucking mojo like i just want Who's paul next? mccartney paul mccartney please yeah i can deal with that fucking bono from you too just fucking die guy from maroon five what even is his name <laughs> i don't even know his name i don't even <laughs> want to think about it the entire imagine dragons in an airplane that goes down the ocean mumford and sons I, you know, they don't bother me anymore because I don't they really hear me. about them anymore. I know, but, but I just want them to... Oh, you know who else I want to die in a fiery, like, train wreck? Train, specifically. Kings of Leon. Another band that... What happened to them? Just let them die. Yeah, let them die. I, I think they should stay where they are now. I just... just I never really hear about them anymore. Good. Um, people can call the Sacred Heart Hotline at 323-522-4032. Do want to hear from you. Uh, trying to build a backlog. So definitely give us a call. 
And big ups to all the listeners who support us on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. You're the ones that keep the show going. You're the ones that keep it sick and wrong every week. Patreon.com slash sick and wrong. Um, and also, if you want to get some merch, just head on over to the T Public store. Uh, sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop. Just click on the picture of the Pope. Get yourself a Satan is waiting t-shirt. Sold uh, three of those this week. Oh, nice. I was surprised. And uh, Sick and Wrong Song of the Week, as we mentioned before, uh, we're going to play a Mojo Nixon song in, uh, in honor of uh, Mojo. Uh, you know, he died on an outlaw country cruise. Do yeah. you know about this? Uh, I do kind of know about this. Who and else I'm, was on the cruise? I'm waiting to get the insider scoop from my trusted friend, the same friend who sends me um, compromising pictures of C. Thomas Howell, who has insider info. So I'm just going to give it a few days. I'll, I'll get the gossip. I'll well, impart it on the discard. So Mojo Nixon reportedly suffered a cardiac event <laughs> after performing a show on the Outlaw Country Cruise. Um, how you live is how you should die, his family said in a statement, which I kind of agree. On a cruise. Yep, <laughs> how he lived. I mean, he was, he was you know, playing shows up until the end. He was a full tilt, wide open, rock hard, root hog, corner on two wheels, plus on fire. Passed after a blazing show. Yeah. So, you know, um, cardiac event on the Outlaw Country Cruise is about right. And that's just how he did it. So he was born Neil Kirby McMillian Jr. in 1957, North Carolina. He made six albums with uh, musician Skid Roper. And he peaked on the Billboard charts with the single Elvis is Everywhere. It's a great song. Yeah. We're going to end the show here with one of my favorite Mojo Nixon songs and definitely a, a big single for him, Don Henley Must Die. And I agree with him there. Uh, you know, that was actually a hit when it came out in the early 90s. And it was actually a hit with the actual Don Henley. Oh, that's good. Yeah, apparently Mojo Nixon said that uh, Henley came to one of his shows and demanded that he sing that song. And he was wasted. And he said, uh, he was shit-faced. And he goes, I want to sing that song, especially the part about not getting together with Glenn Fry." And, and Nixon said he was belting that shit out, screaming <laughs> like he was Johnny fucking Rotten. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Mojo has left the building and uh, rest in power. That, you know, they, they don't really make artists like that anymore. They don't. Yeah, but people go check him out. I mean, his uh, his music's out there. I love the album he did with uh, with um, Jello Biafra, Prairie Home Invasion. But the the album Otis is where the song Don Henley Must Die is from, uh, which came out in 1990. Um, Don Henley Must Die by Mojo Nixon. So we're going to end the show here with, uh, with, with that song. Uh, people, we'll be back next week with episode 933. Till then, take it sleazy. This is the sound of my brain. I said, this is the sound of my brain on Don Henley. Then I said, one, two, three, four. He's a tortured artist, used to be in the ego. Don't
kidding. Can't you tell? I love his sensitive music, idiot poetry swell. You and your cut are killing rock and roll. It's not because you're OLD. Cause you ain't got no soul. Don't be afraid of fun. Loosen up your ponytail. Be wild, young, free and up. Get your head. Mr. Chappelle, do you know what you'd like for your in-flight meal? What are you serving? Oh, we have fish or chicken. Ooh! I just heard the magic words. Chicken, go on over to you a big bucket, nigga, and take a bite, you black motherfucker. I'll have the fish. Thank you very much. You son of a bitch! You don't want no fish! Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I just realized we are all out of the fish. But the chicken's quite good. You can't be fake, nigga. Get the chicken. How was it prepared? Oh, it's fried. Hallelujah! 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 You big lip bitch. I'll have a, I'll have a fried chicken. Thank you.